Welcome back to Why Don't We Know. Season two is just around the corner and we are really excited about it. But in the meantime, here at the Breckner Center, we started a speaker series focused on government secrecy and the people who work toward transparency. Our first guest was Jason Leopold, one of the top investigative journalists of our time and a reporter with his own compelling personal story. The event, which was co-hosted by the Bob Graham Center for Public Service, took place last week in Gainesville, and we thought you might like to take a listen. Enjoy, and talk to you soon. To the Bob Graham Center for Public Service, it's my pleasure to welcome you here in person and remotely, uh, for those of you who are attending online, uh, tonight's event. Uh, we're really excited about this partnership with the Breckner Center uh, and with the College of Journalism. I, I want to note really briefly, uh, so back in 1999, I was doing dissertation research and I was at the Johnson Library, Presidential Library in, in Austin, Texas, and I had a bunch of FOIA requests I needed to do. <laughs> and I got those submitted, um, and oddly enough, it, the last response I received, I think, was in 2014 to a FOIA request I submitted in 1999. I haven't received any, but, but it took 15 years for, for that to get processed. So hopefully uh, we'll hear some, some other stories with a, a, a little more timely response. Um, a couple of quick housekeeping uh, things for you. If you're attending remotely, when we get to the Q&A section, uh, if you want to submit questions through the little bubble on the lower right of your screen, uh, you'll be able to do so. We will have some runners with mics here in the, the audience uh, for, for audience Q&A uh, at the end. Um, it's my job tonight to, to be kind of quick and get out of the way. Uh, and so my responsibility is simply to introduce the dean of the College of Journalism, Hub Brown. Hub joined UF in July of 2021 in the middle of a pandemic and, and came in to, to try to lead a a, a school that uh, had to try to figure out how to do some things in an interesting way at, at that point. We were able to pry him away from Syracuse University, uh, so he came from the cold to the warm, although I will note, since I grew up in upstate New York, that it was 36 degrees here in Ithaca this morning, or here in Gainesville, and it was 36 degrees in Ithaca, New York this morning, where my son goes to college. So you didn't escape the cold as much as you thought you did. Uh, anyways, it's my pleasure to welcome Hub Brown. Hub, thanks for, for joining us and thanks for the partnership. <clears throat> yes, um, uh, as Humphrey Bogart says in uh, Casablanca about the waters, I was misinformed <laughs> about the cold, or at least today. It'll get warm again, but um, but uh, it's it, it was kind of nice to get that little that little autumn chill in the air, basically. Thank you, Matt. Uh, and let me, uh, let me add my welcome to you and uh, appreciation for your attendance here uh, today. Uh, I would like to thank the Graham Center for co-hosting this event. Uh, this partnership is a marvelous thing, and uh, I am appreciative of it. Uh, and I think that uh, our faculty in the college really appreciates it. You don't take for granted anything these days, in this day and age. And this sort of thing helps, helps us in the College of Journalism tremendously. So thank you so much for that. So tonight is the first event in our new Breckner Center for Freedom of Information speaker series. Uh, this series is going to go forward sharing thought-provoking conversations about government secrecy 
and really the dangers of closed doors, too many closed doors to the public good. Uh, we're very, very fortunate tonight uh, to have our award-winning investigative journalist Jason Leopold join us for this inaugural event. You're going to hear more about Jason in a second. First, I'd like to introduce you to our moderator, Sarah Ganim. Sarah, who is a journalist in residence at the Breckner Center, is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has been with the Breckner Center since 2019. Now, she was previously a reporter for CNN, and before that, a reporter for the Patriot News in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. She won the Pulitzer there for her reporting on the Jerry Sandusky scandal at Penn State University. Incredibly important reporting. Uh, she's an amazing journalist, and we are fortunate to have her uh, as our journalist in residence. So again, welcome. We're glad you're here. And now, here's Sarah Ganim. Matt and Hub for that introduction. I just want to pile on the accolades for a second and say that I'm very happy to be launching this speaker series with somebody who so, for me, just so embodies the mission of the Breckner Center. Um, I truly, when I was thinking of starting this series, could not think of anyone I wanted more to be our inaugural speaker than Jason Leopold because his, his reporting mission is just perfectly aligned with what we are trying to do here. So Jason, thanks for coming here all the way from LA to Gainesville to talk to us. And folks, just so you know, Jason Leopold is a groundbreaking journalist. Uh, he's made his career about unearthing government secrets using the Freedom of Information Act, which we all commonly refer to as FOIA. Um, FOIA was designed to force government agencies to be open and transparent about their workings. That's when it works properly, right? But that's what it was designed to do. And Jason's one of those journalists who forces it to do that. Uh, Jason has been called the most active FOIA litigator in the United States. And to show for it over his 30-year career, his, he's broken stories. First of all, I can't mention them all because we would be here all night just talking about his bio. But he's broken stories with an enormous, impa uh, enormous impact. He's uncovered things like the spiritual fitness test that the army was requiring, um, how big banks continued to make money from improper and illegal practices even after being warned. He's also the reporter who forced the release of Hillary Clinton's emails when she was uh, Secretary of State and using a private server. And you know, some lighthearted stuff too. He was telling some students earlier today about a chicken at the Pentagon. Uh, <laughs> And then some other stuff that you know uh, we that the public needs to know about, and 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 traditional media might have moved on from. Like uh, uh, just a week ago, a week or so ago, uh, he lit up Twitter with uh, documents showing the extent to which government officials had to go to cover up a warship because they didn't want to upset former President Donald Trump. So Jason. As I said, those are just uh, a few of your accomplishments. Um, but please join me in welcoming Jason as our inaugural speaker. Okay, I think our yep, our mics are turned on. 
So Jason, I'm going to start with this question. And rest assured, we'll get to audience questions too. So get, get your pens ready. But um, you have built a brand of journalism that I would stretch to say no one else has quite been able to, to build. Thank um, you. Based on FOIA requests being the bedrock of your reporting. It's gotten you several labels over the years. I think my favorite one is FOIA terrorist, which yeah. of course was meant to be an insult, but as many insults do, it became uh, instead of badge and on, a badge of honor. Can you tell us how, in your opinion, you became the FOIA terrorist and how this became your beat? Sure. So it, I have to go back. Um, I know, when, by the way, when, when Sarah mentioned 30-year career, you were thinking like, wow, this guy is so young. How, did he, how old was he when he started out? Um, so I, I'm going to go back to 2000 and something, uh, maybe mid-aughts. And I had been reporting pretty extensively on uh, the uh, national security issues and uh, the Iraq war and uh, the CIA's, uh, what we now refer to as the CIA's torture program. Um, uh, during the course of my reporting, I had been uh, following a story related to the outing of a covert CIA operative named Valerie Plame. Um, and I had uh, reported a story that uh, George Bush's chief of staff, Karl Rove, was indicted. And I was so happy when I reported that story because I felt like I beat the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and everyone, and I can't wait for them to follow it up. It turned out that Karl Rove was never indicted. And that was a story that cost me my credibility as a journalist that um, uh, came at like such a great cost. And it was a moment where I had two choices. I could have walked away from journalism. Um, and, and mind you, at that time, I said it earlier today, I'm, I'm so grateful that Twitter was either in its infancy or just non-existent at that time. Um, or I could learn from that, you know, from that moment. It was, it was you know, a mistake. And do better. Um, because I still felt you know, that I, I had something to contribute. So uh, as a way of kind of repairing, you know, my credibility as a journalist, um, so a, a source I had gave me a set of documents. And these documents were related to the uh, way in, in which the Air Force trains nuclear missile officers uh, to turn the key to launch nuclear weapons. It was the ethics and morals about launching nuclear weapons. And these training materials, which essentially amounted to a PowerPoint presentation, were incredible. It showed uh, US, Na uh, US Air Force pictures of, you know, depictions of Jesus Christ on a horse holding a nuke and saying, essentially says, Jesus would launch nukes. You should too. Um, so you had the mixture of like religion and propaganda as a way of training these nuclear missile officers. I reported the story. I contacted the Air Force, included the documents with the story. And almost immediately upon publication, um, the, uh, uh, the story went viral. And within 24 hours, the Air Force suspended the training program. And, and a week later, they canceled it outright. 
The person who shared these documents with me got it through a FOIA request. And now I had filed some FOIA requests at that time, but I was not aggressive by any means. And that was a light bulb moment for me. That was the moment where I said, I need to use this tool aggressively. And then I found out you could sue the government, and I never looked back. Um, <laughs> so that was just the moment where you know, I decided that this is how I am going to, you know, one, um, uh, write stories that are very much in the public interest and, and launch investigations. Um, and that really upset various government agencies because I, I inundated them with FOIA requests. And it got to a point where, you know, uh, through some sources at the FBI, uh, within the FOIA office, uh, they had said I was terrorizing them. And then someone else said, he's a FOIA terrorist. Uh, so I found that out. The Justice Department, in an email, uh, said Leopold is a member of a FOIA posse. Um, and another Justice Department lawyer said, I, you know, that should be his band name. Um, and uh, you know, the NSA has accused me of weaponizing the FOIA. So it's, um, I do take ownership now of those you know, monikers. Um, and, uh, but that is really kind of how it started. It started by making a mistake as a journalist. I hope you have those emails or those uh, those monikers framed in your office. Oh, I'm yeah. just kind of imagining them all around <laughs> as inspiration as you work. Um, so you re you rebuilt your reputation by focusing on documents instead of solely focusing on sources. But but that's not your reporting is not just about documents, right? I mean, cultivating sources, talking to people, it's still important to your work. Can you talk about that? Sure. Oh yeah, it's crucial to my work and. Uh, you know, documents are very important. There are instances where documents sometimes tell the story. Um, but as you can imagine, you get documents back from the government, from various government agencies, and they're redacted. So I'm trying to sleuth out that information of what's behind the redactions. So I'm trying to find uh, sources or people that are in the know, current, former officials, anyone that could shed light on, you know, on that information. So. Um, I have built the FOIA process, the public records process, into my news gathering process. It happens at the front end. It's not, you know, I, I'm not at the end of an investigation or the end of the story and then saying I'm going to file a FOIA request. That very much becomes part of my news gathering process. So I'm also looking for sources, for people who can uh, uh, provide me with information about the types of records that exist in an agency, um, where those records are stored. Uh, so I count those people you know, as my sources. Um, I did an investigative project that I spent a couple of years on, uh, worked on an investigative project uh, with um, our team at BuzzFeed, and it, and, and we did, it was a joint project with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, ICIJ. And this was um, based on uh, some records that were actually leaked to me uh, by a whistleblower within the Department of Treasury. And, um, you know, when I started uh, covering the Trump administration, my, my job was to follow the money. And so that was brand new to me. So it was really important to find um, people who, you know, could, you know, could inform uh, my reporting. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to kind of give the wrong impression. It is 
you know, I, I, try to, I try to mix it up and keep this balance between building investigative projects and working off documents that I get through FOIA that will also sometimes tell stories like the one you mentioned about the USS John McCain that they had to cover up. Um, but um, source cultivation um, building is, I mean, I spend probably two hours a day, you know, just trying to talk to people. Why do you think it is? And, and I think it's changing a little bit. You've talked about this during the, the day in various classes um, with students, but why is it that FOIA has been a scary tool to journalists? I think when, when you and I talked last week, you said something along, along the lines of editors don't even really ask reporters to use it as a tool. Why is that? Well, there, I think there's a number of different reasons. One, it's a tedious and painstaking process. And there is a need in, in, in some ways to get records or get information immediately and then push it out. And there is also a, um, a knee-jerk reaction that, you know, that it takes too long, which it does. Uh, and therefore, it, there, the information won't be valuable because the public will have moved on. Um, all that is, it, part of it is true, it does take a long time, but for the most part it can be, you know, it's false. I mean, records are extremely valuable even if, even if they f are dated. Um, and, you know, the, the time it takes to put into filing a FOIA request, in some ways, at least on the federal level, and I believe it's on, you know, the state level as well, you just have to reasonably describe the records you're seeking. So you could say, I want the last 50 emails of you know, whomever, um, and, uh, and, and fire it off. But uh, again, I, it's, it's just not something that exists within the news gathering process at the front end. You know, it's not immediately there where you're actually using it to build, you know, a story or an investigation and thinking about it that way. I have tried to approach the FOIA in a very different way, where I approach it and I present it, you know, to, to others that I'm speaking with, whether it's my colleagues or, or giving talks, and, and try to get people to think about it differently, to think about how to use it effectively, to think about that when you're filing a request, how to get those records faster. I just reported a story based on the, um, you know, the, the search at, that took place at Mar-a-Lago, um, I asked the General Service Administration, the GSA, for, you know, for, for records that they had because the former President Donald Trump was blaming the GSA, saying, oh, classified records are found, it's the GSA's fault. So I, I filed a very targeted request. You know, I collected all the news reports that showed, you know, uh, what, what Trump's statements were, and I put together a, a request that I probably spent two or three days on, um, but it took them a month and a half to get me the records, which in the world of FOIA, you know, is, uh, is quite quick. It's really it, fast. Yeah, it's really fast. I mean, it's funny when people, you know, I, this may come across as a weird joke, but um, I often say like, oh yeah, you know, if I went to jail for five years, that'd be no big deal because, uh, you know, I'm very <laughs> used to waiting five years um, for, you know, for records to arrive. Um, certainly, I hope the Nobody in the government is not going to win, but um, uh, so I, that, that's that's essentially I think why it's it's kind of you know uh, 
people have that reaction to it. Um, you preach transparency. It's the bedrock of your reporting, right? But you've also been very transparent about yourself, your own uh, darker moments. You wrote a book about all of this, which I, I'm almost to the end of. Uh, you wrote it back in 20, 2006. I have to say, I actually, my one note about your book is I want you to turn it into an audible after, after meeting you today because you tell such a good story. I mean, you write a great story too, but it's, it, I, I think people would, would love to hear it from you. It's called News Junkie. And for anyone in the room who considers themselves to be a news junkie, you got to read this book. Uh, Publishers Weekly called it required reading for aspiring journalists, and I have to agree. Um, I, I'm sure it didn't feel like it at the time that you were going through everything you were going through, the, the, the subject matter of the book. But everything that you went through at that time, I mean, do you think that you would be where you are today, the FOIA terrorist, if not for what happened? Uh, I do not think that um, I would be. You know, I have to, I, since I am very transparent, um, I think uh, uh, one reviewer wrote about my book that it was, quote, an orgy of disclosure. Um, I actually wish I didn't write my book at the time. I'll be honest with you. Um, I wish I did not write it. It was a, a, you know, a very dark you know, moment for me. Um, I, you know, had, uh, there, there is, uh, on the cover of my book, there's a pile of cocaine um, and a razor blade and, and, depending on which version you have, like a computer screen. Um, I'm recovering, you know, I've been, you know, clean and sober for, for 24 years. Um, and uh, the, the book talks about the, you know, the clash between my personal and professional life. And so, um, and how my personal life pro informed my professional life, um, and um, kind of how I handled that and, and worked, you know, um, as a journalist. Um, but at the time that I wrote it, I actually didn't think I was going to make it. Um, and so I felt like I had a story to tell. Um, and it, it leaves off, you know, in 2006. A lot has happened in the 16 years since I wrote that book. Um, my brother was murdered six years ago. Um, you know, it completely destroyed my family. Uh, and all of that, you know, kind of has, you know, is what drove me to be kind of um, as relentless as I am as a journalist, you know. So I, I wish I had the opportunity, you know, one could say like, oh, you could write another book. But I feel like the story that I have to tell is w would have been far better if I if I waited. Um, but I do think that the you know I do not think that I would you know have been at this place or be at the place that I am now because you know essentially what the book allowed me to do was to sort of um, come clean with myself and be honest with myself and be that kind of transparent person uh, in order to you know move on from from what I was running from. And I think that the, you know, what maybe people are just unaware of is that, you know, I, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a human being, you know, and this is, you know, essentially who I, you know, who I am. It made me think a lot about, you know, that all happened before social media, but, um, and quite frankly, before the economic downturn of newspapers and before cable news became what cable news is made me think about a lot of journalists who 
um, see their, um, their number one goal is somewhat misguided in being they want to be first. And sometimes they don't just want to be first with their publication, but they turn to things like Twitter to mm -hmm. be first. And I've personally witnessed, and I know you have too, a lot of really good people, a lot of really good journalists um, misstep in that way. And it made me think about you know, the lessons that you bring to, to, to journalists who may fall into that trap. Yeah, like I said, I think I'm in a unique position. I know what not to do. Um, I truly do. I know what not to do uh, as a journalist now. Um, and, and, you know, part of the, uh, of at least of my book, was discussing this rush, you know, that I would get from breaking news, from scoops, you know, this, uh, this adrenaline rush. And it really was a rush. Um, and, you know, I do think that you know the the news industry or or you know depending on what you're covering it it is so competitive you know and so it is very scoop driven um and uh i do think that you know can be very dangerous i also think that and again these are just my opinions but you know it's as an observer and as somebody who's been there right now the you know the public holds the media in such, you know, has such a low opinion of the media and of journalists in general. Um, and the, you know, one of the reasons that I continue to focus heavily on the use of documents is because I truly believe that it is a way to build back, to build one's credibility as a, as a journalist. Um, you're also you know, helping the news organization um, in terms of their credibility and integrity. And uh, it's, it's how that you can get the public to trust you, you know, and, and especially now when, you know, the, there is a danger that you can report a story. Uh, and, if, and if it's anonymously sourced, um, and even not, that it can just turn out to be you know, dead wrong. And that just has a ripple effect um, in general. So it, it shows my age uh, and my maturity, if you will, uh, where I can, you know, where I say now, like I go, I, I'm far, you know, I'm, I'm much more slower, far, far more, you know, uh, I, I, I think more about, you know, what I'm reporting in terms of like, instead of just like turning out, you know, a story just to be first. Now, there are instances where I will get documents and I may have an inkling that somebody else has the same documents <laughs> and then it's just a race, you know, but even that could be dangerous, you know, because there is a, you know, you, you could misinterpret, you know, a document. Um, but the cost, uh, is so high now to what you could to to what it can you know do uh, if if uh, uh, if you're wrong if the story is incorrect. So, government secrecy has meant a lot of different things over you know different eras of recent history, um, and I think especially today I was thinking this morning about the origins of the FOIA and how it came uh, really. The, the law that created it gained, gained momentum after World War II when there was a lot of government propaganda. 
What does government secrecy mean to you today? That's a great question. I mean, honestly, government secrecy to me means keeping things secret for secrecy's sake. It means that there is a massive bureaucracy that is very used to not uh, uh, being transparent. Um, and therefore, we're going to keep it secret because that's what we've done for such a long time. Or, uh, and or, um, this is embarrassing and we're going to keep it secret. Uh, I know this because in the instances that I have uh, gone to court uh, to, you know, pry loose records that the government said should be secret, when they ultimately disclosed the records, there, there was no real national security risk if that was invoked. There was plenty of embarrassing information. Um, and, you know, sometimes the arguments are just, you know, they're, 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 they're like boilerplate language that, the gov you know, that these government agencies are using. So I think that there's a disconnect between, um, at least on the, and I'm speaking on the federal level, um, but I do think it applies to the state and local level because it trickles down, that um, a lot of uh, work is being done, obviously, through email, through text messages, through various, you know, online systems. Um, so there's a, a paper trail or a digital trail, if you will, that would make those records accessible. Um, and so people are saying, a they're writing a lot more, they're saying a lot more, uh, they're can, you know, doing things that you know, could, could indict the work that they, you know, that they do, um, but also provide the public with much needed transparency around it. So when you have a, an attorney general like Merrick Garland, who issued a new memo this year, you know, essentially saying that, you know, reminding these government agencies of their obligation to be transparent, um, and the government agencies sort of thumb their nose at it and just, you know, continue going on the way they've been going on, um, that's just part of a bureaucracy. So I really think that government secrecy is, is less to do about, in my opinion, keeping, you know, secrets. There are certainly things that are legitimately, you know, classified or, or, or kept under wraps, but um, by and large, it really is more of an institutional sort of dilemma problem that exists within, you know, within all governments. A cultural problem. Cultural problem, About exactly. what open government should be. Yeah. You've broken a lot of stories, but do you have a favorite one that sticks out that you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I do have a favorite one. It, it, this was a story that I broke in 2017, and I'm sorry, but there's going to be some expletives <laughs> that go along with it, because that's what was in the documents. Um, and it's when, you know, when, when, when Trump was uh, sworn in as president, I had filed a FOIA request uh, with, a, uh, with a colleague at, uh, with the FBI. I asked the FBI for all of uh, the records that they had on Trump prior to his announcement that he was, um, you know, going to run for president. So everything that they had on Trump and his businesses, various businesses, and believe it or not, there were lots of businesses that Trump had. I found this long list that was like, you know, 50, 60 of them. So the FBI 
eventually made a production to me. And they made a production of records that were kind of heavily redacted. And essentially what it was is somebody was threatened. There was some kind of threat that went through um, to a person and somehow it related to Trump entertainment. Um, and uh, I couldn't figure out you know, what it was about. And the redactions had to do with privacy. Uh, so they were withholding information related to, no, na nothing national security, mostly privacy exemptions. So I was reading this document one day and I just could not stop thinking about it. <clears throat> and I noticed that the FBI, you know, as they redacted everything, they left in a zip code. And the zip code became the way in which I unraveled the entire story. Um, and for me, kind of confirmed uh, why I do the work that I do around FOIA. So I put the zip code into Google. The first thing that, that pops up really high in the first page of Google was a law firm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. There's a law firm in Lower Manhattan, financial district. I you know, went to the website, checked out the attorneys. There was an attorney. He represented Trump Entertainment, or excuse me, he represented the creditors, uh, people who are investors in, in Trump Entertainment. Trump Entertainment filed for bankruptcy. Um, I happen to reach out to, to this attorney. He does not respond to any of my queries. Um, and uh, I find out that he lives in New Jersey, um, in, a, in a town in New Jersey. The, the FBI document made a mention that this person had filed a police report with his local police uh, station. So I FOIA'd the, um, I was like, ah, just on a whim, I'll send a records request to this police station and see if they have anything you know, about a threat and about some, you know, this guy. Um, the police department sent me the police report. Well, it turns out that this person was threatened by someone named Carmine, um, who said, if you fuck with Trump, we will come for your wife and children. Uh, he contacted the FBI, contacted the police. It turns out that the phone call came from a payphone outside of the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York, where David Letterman is filmed, and where Donald Trump was appearing that evening. Um, so that just is my favorite story for the reasons <laughs> why, because it literally was a zip code that led to the unraveling of this whole story. So, you know, I studied these documents for a long time, and I think what I, you know, the takeaway is, is that aside from it just being an amazing story, um, and by the way, he, he called the police because he went and filed, you know, it, it was on the day that Trump filed for bankruptcy, and, and he filed some motion in court, um, this lawyer. But um, it's how you can still get information out of documents even when they're heavily redacted. You can still get it. What was really the sort of cherry on top was after I reported this story, the FBI, um, sent me a new set of documents and they unredacted all the things that I had already figured out, you know, nice. so yeah.
Did you send them a, a gift basket? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of unraveling, there may, you know, of, of all your reporting in, in its fantastic body of work, but there may not be reporting that was more consequential. Um, you can disagree with me, by the way, if you feel <laughs> this way, but then the forcing of the release uh, of Hillary Clinton's emails. Can you tell us how that request came to be? Sure. Uh, I don't really get, the, I don't often get the chance to kind of, you know, discuss this. Um, it, because it's uh, a sore point for many people, as, as you can imagine. So in 2014, I had just started a, as an investigative reporter at Vice News. It became pretty clear in late 2014 that Hillary Clinton was going to be the Democratic nominee for president. So I felt that it would be uh, a public service, if you will, to you know share with readers and, and, and anyone, frankly, how uh, the nation's top diplomat, she was Secretary of State, would perform as president. Um, and I wanted to gain access to her emails uh, as a way of, uh, you know, sharing with, with the public how she handled issues about uh, related to foreign policy, you know, human rights, um, LGBTQ issues. Uh, you know, you name it, and uh, how uh, that may factor in into a Clinton presidency. So I filed this request in November 2014. In January 2015, was it January 2015? Um, or maybe it was 2015. Anyway, it was a while ago. But I filed, you know, the request. <laughs> Two months later, I sued. I didn't know that Hillary Clinton had a private email server at that time. Um, this was before the New York Times broke the story. Two months after I filed the lawsuit, the New York Times reported that Hillary Clinton had, you know, was using a private email server. It became very apparent why the State Department never responded to my <laughs> request for all of Hillary Clinton's emails. Because there were zero. Because <laughs> right, because they didn't have any. But I did find out later on that they then reached out, you know, to her, uh, uh, her office, and essentially, you know, noted this request and that, you know, she had to re return all of these emails. Um, but my efforts to kind of inform the public about what the contents of the email say and how it would inform a Clinton presidency ultimately became overshadowed by the email scandal. My lawsuit became the vehicle by which all of the emails were, you know, were released um, on a monthly basis, you know, which, you know, one can debate whether, you know, it was my emails that, or, or her emails that I pried loose that, you know, that, that impacted her, or whether it was the, you know, the um, obsessive coverage of, you know, things related to the, you know, you know, to the emails, the scandal itself. So I never really got the opportunity to kind of, you know, share um, or, or write the stories I wanted to. Uh, related to it. I mean, I did write stories, but it was, you know, it was completely overshadowed by the scandal. And, and there were really important records in there. I wrote, you know, one story related to, um, uh, it, it, it was uh, the increase in U.S. presence in Afghanistan that she was, you know, remarking about, which was fascinating behind the scenes account 
of what took place in, 20, in 2009. Uh, there was another one where uh, related to Guantanamo and you know her efforts uh, along with her staff to help uh, uh, get get a detainee you know released who had been captured when he was you know a teenager. So um, that really sort of gave you insight into the the or gave me insight into the kind of you know um, uh, president she may have been on certain issues there, uh, but uh, yeah, ultimately. You know, you can blame James Comey. Have you read? <laughs> have you read every single one of her emails? I have read there every single one of her emails. I, I totally have every single one. Um, and you know, there's lots of please print, please print, PLS print, PLS print. You know, um, and um, you know, there were even emails that uh, you know that that I think uh, were some that were classified that they gave us what's known as a Vaughn index more or less describing you know what what it related to um, and uh, you know yes I think that you know you're right it was very you know very consequential um, and I, I hope enough time has passed where you know people would understand that that's this is my job right you know my job is to kind of is to one, request these records and to share records with the public. Um, and I really don't do that in a partisan way at all. My work is not partisan. Um, and that may be an, an odd thing to sort of think about um, because sometimes people will say, well, well you, you, know, you work for BuzzFeed, you work for Vice News. The reason I work where I work um, is because I am given a platform to do the kind of work that I want to do, that I that I that I believe needs to be done, and those um, news organizations provided me with that platform to do that kind of aggressive public records work and the investigative work. And now, you know, being at Bloomberg News, you know, I'm, I'm I have that, you know, that platform as well. So. That actually leads me uh, yeah. perfectly to my next question, but I, I, you know, it's before we get to that, and then we're going to go to the audience. It's uh, it's striking to me, you know, the scandal became about her her server, the private server, which obviously Jason Leopold did not make her use. Right. Um, but it's how easy it has become to to shoot the messenger. In any case, you now work for Bloomberg, which is a very well, obviously well-known uh, media outlet. But you've also worked for places like Salon.com, and this is going to make me sound old, but like there was a day when BuzzFeed and Vice were not considered like right. mainstream, right? Um, also, places yeah. like Counterpunch you've written for and ZNet. Can you talk about this? I think this is important for students to hear the importance of working at places like that, and and the pros of kind of being in the underdog position when it comes to reporting. Yeah, those startup feels in in the newsroom. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a good question. It's very interesting. I wrote for, uh, yes, many different places. Salon, you know, in a completely different incarnation of that news organization back in you know, two thousand one. Um, I think that it's an opportunity to, you know, find your place as a writer, as a reporter. Um, 
whether it's you know news organizations that, that can give you that kind of platform to um, to to go figure it out, uh, and also provided a I don't know alternative view or an in, you know they they the the independent sort of uh, view um, that that you can get or you know from from these institutions I feel like you know those outlets uh, where when I was writing for them it was certainly during a time when it was for me very difficult after 9-11 to write uh, to report and write the kinds of stories I wanted to write which were uh, re which revolved around who knew what and when and you know is the justification to you know go to war in Iraq is it built on solid and you know is it is based on solid intelligence uh, could we question that and I couldn't do that at the time in you know the more mainstream type publications and these uh, these outlets were just fiercely independent and allowed you to kind of ask those questions so I do think that um, it provides that kind of an opportunity, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to writers. I, I think that there's many more of them now, um, and it's, you know, th 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 there's certainly no shortage of outlets one could go to to, you know, throw throw some reporting out there. I know we have some audience members eager to ask questions and virtually as well. So um, there's a microphone that's going to come if you want to raise your hand and uh, Marianne will bring that over. <laughs> Hi there. Hey there. So just a quick question. Um, what are your thoughts on Edward Snowden and his kind of relationship to public media? That's a good question. Um, what's my thoughts? I mean, honestly, there's my immediate thought is I'm agnostic to it. Uh, I think that, you know, but if I were to really give it some thought, I mean, I think that as a whistleblower, um, he had, you know, very important uh, information you know to share I think that uh, he obviously chose carefully as to you know who he wanted to share it with and had very strong opinions as to why you know it should not be it, 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 the New York Times as an example and I think he's made that you know very clear these days I'm not quite sure I don't pay c close enough attention to what his relationship is you know with um, with media, but I think that um, what we, you know, what what you can possibly take away from uh, from his earlier relationship is how we sort of consume news. And and this was a question, you know, that was asked earlier today about what I read. And I tend to read more individual reporters uh, and their work, and kind of, you know, um, curate my own newspaper through. You know, through various reporters that whose work I've come to, you know, learn about, enjoy, as opposed to just going to one publication. I certainly will scan the New York Times or the Post, 
but I focus more on, you know, the reporters. And I think that, you know, he may have that kind of relationship as well with media, which is more reporter-based than institutional-based. Um, hello. So my question really um, is based on this idea of you being like an investigative journalist, and it kind of ties into what we were ta you were talking about earlier about the FOIA request. So I guess the main question is, oftentimes, as the nature of work of being as an investigative journalist kind of, uh, how do I put it in words, would uh, make many people unhappy or the person who you're talking about very unhappy. And oftentimes when you w uh, do send requests for a FOIA, that would perhaps tip them off, give them a heads up. How do you deal with the pushback? Because that's a very, it's a double-edged sword. It gives you a heads up, like no, it gives you the information that you need, but at the same time, it puts you directly at the front of the issue, so yeah. I mean, it's complex. So, you know, on the federal level, I don't want to come across as, um, I'm trying to think of another word other than the one I'm thinking, but uh, <laughs> uh, as a um, mean person. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, I'm not thinking about, you know, ultimately how it's going to make the person feel, you know. I mean, you know, the, the kinds of records that I'm seeking are, ultimately about injustice and trying to hold power to account um, and accountability. Uh, certainly, if a record shows up if, and it has to do with you know, an individual and, and, and there may be something personal in nature, um, you know, I kind of tackle that as it, you know, case by case basis. Um, but usually it's through a phone call and saying, hey, you know, I have an email and you said this and I'm gonna have to report it, can we discuss it? Um, so one thing I guess I would say is that as a reporter, I am extremely sympathetic and empathetic and compassionate in terms of, you know, the ways in which I deal with people. And it's a very, it's very important, you know, to be that way and that's genu genuinely how I am. But it's also important to be that way. So, you know, in the course of reporting, so um, people will be comfortable speaking with you and sharing information. You know, so I, I tend to try to approach stories that involve people. You know, when I'm when I'm writing about people that way, in general. You know, there's just instances when you you have to report it. Uh, you know, I don't. There is nothing I'm reporting ever that I think is anyone's going to be happy about. <laughs> so, um, so I'm kind of you know just used to that and just you know take it as it as it comes. My my perhaps my main question was in the legal aspect of it that could like you could be in danger more perhaps. Oh, yeah, I see. That in that yeah, I was coming from that angle. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there there have been instances. You know, the, the government has you know prosecuted one of my sources and put her in jail, uh, and and thankfully she's out of jail and and tried to, you know, come after me as a co-conspirator, um, and uh, so there was you know some fear around that. There's certainly, you know, these days because. Um, uh, the subjects that you're writing about are very litigious, you know, always getting threatened with a lawsuit. Uh, thankfully, I have 
you know, very good editors and had very good editors who, you know, try to just keep me safe. But genuine, generally, I mean, I don't know. It's not just something I'm, I don't tend to worry about too much. If anything, I feel like when I do get, you know, sense those kinds of threats, um, it just makes me, you know, motivated to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those subjects never get that, you know? They never understand right. that that's, yeah. that's al always a, a motivator. It's an indication you're on the right path, Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. <clears throat> Hello, I hope you're having a good day. Um, I, I am, thank you. Of course. Um, I wanted to ask, just as a student journalist at UF myself who is enamored with public records and the process, um, FOIA records and those sorts of processes are a little scary. How would you advise someone like me who wants to jump into that, that kind of reporting? Um, how would you advise me to do that? Sure. So I would become, one, I, I would start by becoming familiar with agencies, okay? The key to being a, using public records in a very efficient way is to understand the way agencies function. So once you get familiar, whether it's with a police department, for example, um, looking at the organizational chart of a police department um, or any government agency, uh, knowing what all the, you know, the various components are within you know, a police department. Maybe you have the intelligence division, the you know, uh, detective division, just becoming familiar with a government agency, um, and then uh, trying to take a look at past records that may have been released and reading those. There's a lot of reading, a lot of research uh, before filing a request that you know, will educate you on, on how that all works and what, you know, what kinds of records are released that will help inform future requests. Right, that will help inform requests that you file down the road, where it will not feel as intimidating, you know. So, I would say that that would be the most important thing that you can do is, you know, is understand the way an agency functions. And in addition to that, many agencies have uh, record-keeping systems where various filing systems uh, that certain records are stored in. So, you know, if you could. Talk to people. Whenever you're working, if you're working on a story, one thing that you should always ask is, do you know if there's any records that exist? Are there any memos? Are there any emails? Are there any letters, reports? Always have that kind of question built into your list of questions. You know, um, again, it's a way to think about records, you know, public records in a different way, um, as opposed to I got to figure this all out on my own. Um, and, and uh, will, will hopefully help your approach. Sure. Hi, so my question relates to your experience reporting on 9-11. You mentioned how the independent smaller outlets uh, gave you a voice and gave you the ability to expand on a situation that many treated as you know, uh, a terrible event and that's what they took it as. Um, Particularly in my mind is I've heard stuff about you know trillions of dollars go missing the day before and you know conspiracy theories and all that stuff. 
I wondered how you had, like, what was your experience in that? Um, were you labeled conspiracy theorist, but, you know, you had to back it up with evidence, or what was your uh, sure. situation like? So, to be clear, you know, the, the reporting that I did was, for the, for the most part, always based on some kind of interview that I did. And um, I, I don't want to say, I, you know, it, I don't want this to turn into, like, sounding conspiratorial uh the you know the questions that that i had asked is essentially like what was the intelligence you know looking like prior to 9 11. it had nothing to do with did a plane really crash into the towers or the pentagon so to be clear that that wasn't where my reporting was was based on but anytime anytime even to this day that i report on 9 11 or say anything related to 9 11 it's as if somebody has some Google alert on and there is a swarm. Uh, it's like bees coming in and they're just, you know, uh, basically throwing all sorts of, you know, what I would consider conspiratorial, you know, claims. You should investigate this and your reporting is BS because this is not how it happened. And it's like, where did you people come from? And when I say you people, like, it's just, it literally is just where... Did it come from? So there is really still a, um, uh, you know, when it comes to 9-11, it's obviously a very, very sensitive subject, and people have very, very strong feelings about, you know, 9-11. Um, and uh, I still think, you know, that there is a heck of a lot of reporting to do. And, you know, we're in the Bob Graham Center. I mean, Bob Graham was you know, was uh, instrumental in raising important questions around, you know, 9-11 and certainly, you know, the, um, uh, uh, the FBI's own sort of investigations into it. Um, but it is, you know, a topic that, that essentially, no matter what I report, you know, unless it says what, what certain people want it to say, it's, you're, you're often met with that kind of response. Yeah, so in terms of the content itself that you reported, in relation to your other stories, how long did it take, uh, so to speak, in relation to, again, you know, anything that you uh, might have done at that time? When you say how long, how long? So long? in terms of the pushback, because they're also investigating as well. How was, what was your timetable uh, with that? Oh, um, I mean, there were instances where I've spent, you know, I did the very first investigation, and, and I have to say this is related to 9-11 because it is, is, you know, I, I spent 10 years pursuing the architect of the CIA's torture program, you know, so that took 10 years to get him to actually say anything, and, you know, I was the first one ever, you know, get him to speak. But tell them how you got him to speak. Oh, this was really unbelievable. It's a good story. This was a major covert action. <laughs> I picked up this thing called the telephone <laughs> and um, one Friday and decided to call him and he answered and we spoke for three hours. Um, it went back and forth where he, you know, accused me of being, you know, he, he had a strong opinion about journalists, but he had a, you know, I let him, you know, go off on me and as a journalist. And um, I won him over, you know, and that was the first time he ever spoke. 
Um, and he was a very important you know, figure in the sense of like, this is the guy who designed the CIA's torture program. Um, but it took me 10 years to get there. Uh, I had pursued a set of documents that, you know, is, were, were the diaries written by the first uh, detainee captured after 9-11. That took, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, so it really depends on what the story was, but for the most part it's, you know, very lengthy investigations. But there's also a bunch of stories that, um, that I had, but I just didn't have enough confirmation that I'm still sitting on. You know, I don't know if I'll be, ever be able to report those. We're going to do one more. Go ahead. Uh, yep. Hello. Thank you for your insights today. Uh, I'm also speaking as a student journalist uh, here at the CJC. And I have a question to you about FOIA and just requesting records. As you've mentioned, they, it's a very lengthy process. And you said you've waited months, sometimes years. So I want to ask, did you ever have to kill a story while waiting for these records? And when is it? when do you think it's worth waiting out uh, the records request, and when do you think it's better to just kill it and move on and work on other stuff? Good question. Um, I thought you were going to say, have I ever killed a person? Uh, <laughs> I'm glad it's related to a story. Uh, no, I've never killed a story based on a FOIA. So I, I will often get government agencies who, uh, uh, government agency officials who will reach out and say, it's been seven years since you filed this FOIA request. Are you still interested? And I say yes. I'm still interested. I have left these records to someone in my will in case I <laughs> die. Um, so I, I, I never kill the story because you never know what the records are going to say. You know, and a perfect example is you know, um, these records for, you know, that came back from, uh, from the Navy related to their ways in which they covered up John, the USS John McCain to <coughs> literally covering it so, so, so Trump would would not see the name, so, so he wouldn't get upset. Um, I mean, he's not president anymore. Uh, and I wanted those records at the time, but uh, it became, it was still newsworthy when I got them. So I would never kill a story. I would just kind of, you know, put it on ice, um, depending on how I proceed. But I'm very strategic as well, because I try to, it depends on what the story is. Um, because then, you know, I may just sue for the records, uh, you know, to, to, to get it that way. Don't kill your stories. Never kill your stories. Yeah. You never know when they're going to come back right. from the dead. Um, I want to close by just saying a, a big thank you um, to the Graham Center, to the ladies on the, le on the left who uh, so, so helped us organize this event, uh, to Matt, to Hub, our, our amazing dean who put the, the idea in my head for this. Thank you so much for your leadership and support. To Janet Coates, who um, I can't say enough about you and, and your leadership. I love to work for you. And Randy, where's Randy? Our chief problem solver in the back. Give him a hard time on the way out. Um, <laughs> and to our audience, amazing questions. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here to our virtual audience. Thank you for listening in. And to Jason, of course, for flying Thank all the you. way from LA to be our inaugural Breckner Speaker Series uh, speaker.
Thank you got to come up with a new name. So if you have suggestions, <laughs> please, please share them. Um, I couldn't have been more delighted to, to have this conversation with you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. This was great. Thank you. This is what I know.